3: Met fan. Welcome to episode 255 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SP Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. Uh, my name is Brian Salvatore. This team is tough to watch. I say this every week lately, but this is really a rough week of Mets baseball. But we are here to talk not so much about the major league team this year, but the minor league affiliates. We have brought in our friend Steve Saipa to chat with myself and Chris McShane about the affiliates this year and how they did and what we can expect from uh, some of these players for next year. So here you go. Enjoy. We are joined on the show tonight by our pal Steve Saipa. He is migrating over from his normal solo uh, piece on the show to be part of our big discussion tonight because the minor league season has wrapped up for all Mets affiliates. Uh, The Mets are ending this season with only one team in their entire organization, over 500. It has not been the greatest year in professional Mets baseball, a, a rather major league baseball. So we wanted to get uh, Steve on to talk about the minor league year, some highlights, some lowlights. And I guess we're just going to go sort of uh, team by team, starting with Triple A. So uh, the Las Vegas 51s went 56 and 86 this year. And, uh, you know, they graduated a fair amount of talent towards the end of the season up to the majors. So, Steve, what was your impression of Las Vegas this season?
4: Uh, Well, basically, there were low expectations from the get-go because there was little dependable offense outside of Dom Smith and Ahmed Rosario and basically no pitching whatsoever. Um, Ricky Knapp was probably the best pitcher going into the season there, and he's a guy that's absolutely not equipped for the PCL. So, predictably... You know, the 51s uh, did really bad.
3: <laughs> was there uh, was there a bright spot or two? Uh, maybe an unexpected uh, player that emerged?
4: Uh, yeah, I'll say that the biggest surprise for me would be Paul Seawold. Uh, he only played eight, game, eight games down there. Well, not down there, but over there. <laughs> but he had decent, it's kind uh, decent success. kind of down. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But he's had decent success at the major league level, and that's what's kind of surprising. Not that he was a bad pitcher, necessarily, but he was a kind of underrated, uh, you know, older back-end reliever. And, you know, a couple of years ago, Las Las Vegas had John Church, and he was kind of a very similar guy to Seawold, and he never got a chance. And I figured that Seawold never would get a chance either, but he did, and... He's had decent success, and he's got that major league pension, and he's a you know he can call himself a bona fide major leaguer now. So good for him. <laughs> uh,
3: we obviously know the perils of pitching in the PCL. We know that the ball just you know jumps out of all those ballparks there, uh, and we know that you know for for pitchers it can be damaging because it can get in their heads and they're giving up so many hard hit balls. For batters, it can get in their heads where they think they're more power hitters than they uh, than they actually are. So, uh, what were um, would you say that there were any you know seasons that would have been salvaged in a different uh, division, or do you feel like this team was low on talent no matter where they were playing?
4: uh well, like I said earlier, Ricky Nap—he's a kind—he of, was on the back end of our top twenty-five uh, list for this season, and I know Greg is pretty high on him. He likes him. He's a guy that he has basically average stuff all across the board. Nothing really sticks out anywhere. And that basically turns you into a major victim in the PCL. So, I mean, if he was, he he spent some of the part of the year in Binghamton uh, towards the end of the year, and he had a lot better success there. So, he's a guy that if the PCL was more um, pitcher friendly, he could have had a better season than he did.
3: Was there anybody offensively that, that really thrived this year in the, uh, in the friendly confines?
4: Uh, well, there's always Travis Tyrone, who is a kind of perennial, uh, you know, quadruple-A kind of slugger. Um, there's a couple of guys that did better than I would have expected, I guess, uh, Jace Boyd and Phil Evans. They both set career-high in home runs with uh, Levin, and outside of the PCL, they probably don't do that. So they got aided uh, with the fat, that thin air and altitude, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall,
3: sort of looking at the, uh, the team and how they did, do you feel that this was uh, about what people expected from this team? Or do you think that they were even worse than people had uh, maybe projected going in?
4: Um, I guess it's about what you would have expected. I mean, like I said, there really was no pitching. And outside of Donald Smith and Ahmed Rosario, there really weren't that many dependable marquee names. So, you know, ending the season about 30 games under 500 is maybe a little worse than you would kind of hope. But they were definitely going to be a, a sub-500 team.
2: Now, uh, I... Uh, Sergio, I Yeah, yeah, no, I have a Dom Smith question. So is he the poster boy for the baseball is obviously juiced because, you know, (laughs) he had 16 home runs and 500 plate appearances in Vegas, which is notorious. uh, Not just Vegas, the whole Pacific Coast League uh, is notorious for being hitter friendly, uh, you know, power hitting all, all like across the board hitting. Is easier there, but he had 16 in 500 plate appearances, and now he's hit 7 in 144 at the major league level. Uh, That doesn't make any sense.
4: (laughs) I mean, I I will admit I really have not been watching any Mets baseball at all, but I do know that Smith is hitting like 220 or something very low, which is kind of uh, not what you'd expect from him. So it's possible that Smith is basically just selling out all for power right now, which is kind of an atypical approach for him, but again, not having really seen much baseball at the, you know, with with him playing, I can't really say for certain that he's doing that or anything like that.
3: You're a lucky man for not having watched a lot of <laughs> baseball lately. Uh, says you're talking to the two guys who recap uh, a lot of a lot of bad baseball right now. Um,
4: yeah I'm I'm sorry for you guys (laughs) that's all right.
3: Uh, we will definitely do a minor league preview at the start of next season but you mentioned the lack of marquee names at AAA this year do you think next season there's going to be uh, a a more marketable bankable uh, enjoyable team in Vegas or do you see this as a problem with the Mets system that is going to be uh, still there come uh, April
4: Um, in terms of Offense. I think there should be a couple of guys that graduate from Binghamton into Las Vegas next year that will help. But in terms of pitching, again, I think it's just almost it's kind of a incurable problem because of the environment that's over there. That really, you know, a couple of years ago when we had Noah Syndergaard in the in the PCL and he had like a, a almost a four and a half ERA and whatever it was, and everyone was shouting, "Oh my God, Noah Syndergaard is a bust! He's a bust!" Obviously, he's not, but um, really just pitching is just always going to be a kind of problematic thing in Las Vegas.
3: All right. Well, um, Chris, any other Vegas comments before We move down to Binghamton?
2: Uh, I guess I'm just also curious, you know, obviously you touched on Seawald. Anything with Bradford, uh, who, you know, I think has been a little bit surprising in his major league capability. Uh, anything there that you think – is impressive or, or notable that might mean that he could stick around and be a piece of a you know good major league bullpen.
4: Uh, he's another guy that kind of fits that profile as a, a fastball slider guy, and the Mets have had success with that. So I mean, he could have uh, he could have a life for a couple of years in the kind of middle of the bullpen. I'm kind of surprised that he got the chance, got the opportunity, but. The Mets bullpen this year has been pretty
3: crappy.
4: So, <laughs> fair enough.
3: Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that brings us to the one, uh, the one team in the Mets organization that won with a the went with a winning record this season. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies, the first year of their uh, wonderful new name, went eighty five and fifty four for the great city of Binghamton. Um, this is a team that as you were saying Steve is looking to graduate a couple of players up to play next season. So obviously this team was a little bit more stacked in terms of uh you know impact talent. But what was uh well what was the key to their successful season this year?
4: Uh, I think it's just that a lot of hitters stepped up and a lot of pitchers stepped up and everything clicked together. A lot of the problems with the minor league teams is that there might have been good pitching, but hitting was poor. Or there might have been good offense, but pitching was poor. So for Binghamton, everything kind of worked together at the same time. And that's why they're able to uh, have a winning record and get into the playoffs.
3: Was there a uh, sort of a, a real surprise with, with, with the folks that put it all together this year? Or was everybody were the folks that shown the ones that you were expecting early in the season to do well?
4: I think the biggest surprise would be Corey Oswalt. I don't want to say that his numbers were necessarily dominant, but they were pretty damn good. He had a 2.28 ERA, 119 strikeouts, which is almost nine per inning. Uh, he limited opponents to a 2.36 batting average, and he you know he won uh, Eastern League Pitcher of the Year. And the thing is that Oswalt, like the numbers and the stuff, I don't know. There's a disconnect. I don't want to say he's bad because he's not. But really nothing jumps out at you. He has a kind of fringed average fastball, a uh, uh, fringed average slider, and fringy changeup. So I mean it it's not overpowering stuff and he just based on the numbers, he really carved up the Eastern League this year.
3: Were you able to see him in person this year?
4: Yeah, I saw him in when they came to when they came to Trenton. I think it was the end of May. Okay. And uh, did, my did my gun out was, at you um no, just, just the fact that his stuff really wasn't that it was just very pedestrian and then then, as the season went on, he kept putting up good numbers after good number, good start after good start, and it was a bit you know surprising yeah
3: uh on the offensive side who was uh, who was a standout this year
4: uh probably David Thompson. Uh, he's a guy I've. I was high on him when the Mets drafted him. He set, I think, the record for uh, home runs at Florida, and then basically his power just disappeared as a professional. But he became a decent hitter, and this year he kind of started the season out slow, but he put everything together. He was hitting decently, and for towards the end of the year, about maybe it's, say, end of July into early May, he was, I mean, end of July into early August, he was basically hitting and hitting for power. And when if he was able to put those two things together, he's kind of a, he could be a, a decent offensive uh, asset. Uh,
3: why don't you give us, because it, it was such a good season, why don't you give us one or two more uh, sort of standout players from the team?
2: Hmm.
4: Well, obviously, Peter Alonso was only there for a uh, couple of, like, two or three weeks or so. But he hit, uh, he continued his mashing of the ball. <laughs> Who else? Um, on the pitching side, there were a few standouts. Uh, and, of course, Luis Guillorme, Uh He had an on-base streak, I think it was 34 games in a row, where he got on base at least once. And it's unfortunate that um, he really has no power whatsoever because, you know, a guy that can play elite defense at shortstop who can get on base, you know, it's a it's a valuable thing. Um, but back to pitching, we had a couple of pitchers, uh, relievers, that, you know, uh, kind of stepped up uh, Tyler, Bashler and Adonis, who said, uh, again, they only played... A handful of games at Binghamton, but they stood out. A couple of those new guys that we traded for, Drew Smith, they had decent seasons. Um, Marcos Molina, he had a Tommy John surgery two years ago. He had a finally full, healthy season. This year he was okay. A little concerning that his velocity was down, but the numbers were solid, so he could bounce back and Mickey Janice is a knuckleball pitcher, and it was just fun to see the knuckleball.
3: <laughs> I don't think anyone disagrees with that. Yeah. Chris,
2: Chris, any comments about Binghamton? Um, Well, I guess it's sort of a, a, a bridge between Binghamton and Vegas. You know, Pedro Lopez is a guy who got a lot of attention over the last couple of years because of the work he's done in the minor leagues. Obviously, Binghamton was without him this year, and be, because he got promoted to Vegas... Um, if Terry Collins is done after this season, which seems likely uh, at this point, you know, do you think Lopez is a, a legitimate candidate to manage the Mets? Is that something you'd want to see? You know, it's something that I, I like to throw his name out there just because it's not Wally Backman or it's <laughs> not Chip Hale and Bob Garen. You know, it's just somebody who's not <clears throat> kind of the obvious choice for a, a certain percentage of the fan base and and the obvious choice for the front office so uh right. just curious about thoughts on him
4: i personally would find him a, i would like to see him get a chance to manage the Mets in the minor leagues he had a decent he had a pretty good um resume in binghamton i can't say that you know anything strikes out you know anything pops out at me as terrible when it comes to like his managerial strategies or bullpen usage or anything like that um I don't know you know I don't have any inside information or anything like that so I don't know what the Mets think and I don't know how he would stack up against actual guys with major league experience that might be looking for managerial jobs next year but I mean if we had to make just a short list of guys you know Lopez would definitely be on my list
3: all right uh I, I guess my last question is uh how bad of a name is that is the rumble ponies
4: <laughs> yeah it's grown on me i guess not in the sense that i like it but i guess i've just accepted it
2: <laughs> is yeah. there uh is there the equivalent of a swear jar like howie has used <laughs> over the years for shea stadium for calling them the b mats i feel like I it's that... still like a legitimate thing to say even though it's not the name of the team I think it's such
4: such an outrageous name that you can't help but remember.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> and the weirdest thing was when I was at uh, the last playoff game in Trenton when they lost and Trenton won the series, and I was sitting next to some older ladies, and my brother was talking to them. He's a conversationalist, so they kind of were talking to me too. And the lady asked me, like, what is a Rumble Pony? What does that mean? So I had to, like... Explain that to a, another human being, and it was a weird situation for <laughs> me to be in.
1: <laughs>
3: oh boy, uh, yeah, it is. It is a weird name. It's not a very good one. Um, you want to talk about Columbia next? Sure. The the Fireflies, another new name for a, a Mets affiliate. Uh, this, of course. Was uh, they were highlighted this year by a very very special man, who I'm sure we'll get to momentarily. But uh, this team came close to getting to 500. They were 68 and 70. They have Will in the dark hats. What else is there to say about the uh, Columbia Fireflies, Steve?
4: Uh, well, the they had a lot of talent in one area, pitching, but they had a lot of underperformers in offense. And they basically, in the first half, they jockeyed with the Greenville Drive. For uh, first place, they fell just short. And then in the second half, they were a lot worse because of injuries and promotions and trades. That stuff basically gutted the team. And they were forty and twenty-eight in the first half, and then in the second half they are twenty-eight and forty-two. So they basically inverted their uh, win-loss record and fell just short of five hundred as a result. Uh, who were some of the standout
3: performers in the team?
4: Um. Most of the pitchers, um, just in April, the staff had six shutouts, and they added two more in May and one more in June, so that's nine in the first half. That's a lot of shutouts. Uh, Mirandy Gonzalez, who's since been traded, but him and Jordan Humphreys, um, they were pretty dominant. Harold Gonzalez had a decent season, and kind of more importantly, he took a, a step forward in the scouting department. His, his fastball got a couple more ticks on it, and it's hitting... 90 and higher a little bit more frequently, which is really big for him. And then Colin Holderman and Thomas Zipucky are two guys that, if they were healthy, it would have been fun to see them added to that mix because they're guys that have very high upsides too.
2: Is um Were they too conservative with Humphreys, you think, this year? I know it's something that uh, I saw popping up over the course of the minor league season, occasionally from a certain green member of Mets Twitter. <laughs> and not too... Uh, <laughs> Not to subtweet Steve on the other Steve, I should say. One of our many other Steves in the history of the site. Uh, not to subtweet him on the podcast, but, you know, just curious about that. Uh, that assignment. No,
4: I, I don't really think so. I mean, he was... Um, a lot of times they are a little conservative in assigning guys, and Humphreys is a guy that I think that he, he fit well, at least in the first half, uh, with... Columbia, and then based on his performance, you know they could have kept him there or promoted him. They did eventually promote him. He threw sixty-nine uh, innings. You know, assuming that he didn't get hurt in the second half, and threw uh, a full season, he would have hit about one hundred twenty innings or so. You know, a little more maybe, depending on how much they would want to have stretched him, and he would have ended up in uh, High A, St. Lucie. With uh, you know 120 innings, give or take, which is fair for a guy with his skill and background and everything like that.
3: Now, uh, I think one of the names that Mets fans tend to know, partially because it's such a fun name, is Zapucky. and you know mm-hmm. he's he's one of the prospects that I think your uh, you know maybe not your average Wfan listener is aware of, but he's certainly a name that that stands out. So what is it about Zbucky that Mets fans should be hopeful for, and what do you think uh, his prognosis with his injury is in terms of affecting his season next year?
4: Uh, just hopefully he comes back fully healthy and he has his velocity. Uh, that was a problem with Marcos Molina this year, is that when he came back, his velocity you know, used to kind of be low to mid-90s, and he was... Sitting in like the high 80s for a lot of starts. High 80s, low 90s, and a lot of starts. And that's a bit concerning. So hopefully Zapucky's able to come back. He's able to keep his velocity uh, where it was. And that his off-speed stuff doesn't really suffer. I and mean, he's starting to get older now. He's had a lot of injuries um, build up. And that's kept his innings... Pitched low. I think he's going to be turning 21 next year, or 22. But that's still a very few innings for a guy that's not starting to get up there. But I mean, a guy with his skill and with his age and everything, you would hope that he would, you know, be in St. Lucie next year, or, or uh, even, you know, if you want to be really gung ho about it, maybe even Binghamton he comes back next season or even 2019 you know he'll probably be in columbia again possibly to just kind of get him uh, a feel back for professional pitching again then bump him back up but you know it's started the injuries are starting to take a definite toll on his uh baseball development
3: Chris, I have a player I want to ask about, but do you have
2: anyone else to ask about with Columbia? Uh, no, I only want to ask about the greatest minor league baseball player of all time to well, that, bridge the Columbia-St. Lucie gap. So That's who I was going to talk
3: about, too. So
2: Go ahead. Um, <laughs> it's all you. Really? Who is this
3: guy you speak of? <laughs> uh, you, you might have heard of him. Uh, his name is Tim Tebow. He's the savior of baseball and sports in general. And uh, you know he he played half a season in Columbia, half a season in St. Lucie. Um, what did you? I, I know he's a punchline. I know that he is the uh, that he is basically internet sports fandom distilled down to its worst aspects in terms of how people talk about him. But 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 realistically, what is Tim T as a minor league baseball player in your opinion?
4: Um, he's. Tim Tebow. I mean, this... <laughs> you know, I don't really even know how to describe it. I'll I'll give him his due. You know, he he didn't hit very well in Columbia, and he didn't hit very well when the season was over after getting promoted to St. Lucie. But for basically an entire calendar month from the end of June when he got promoted to St. Lucie to the end of July, he did hit basically... Uh, he hit three hundred three, three eighty nine, four ninety five, which is impressive for pretty much anybody in the month of a you know a month, let alone Tim Tebow. So I don't know that happened.
3: I mean, is there any any reason to believe that he will continue to rise in the system for any reason other than the uh, sort of gimmicky value of having Tim Tebow in your
4: system? No, I don't think there's an. I mean, if he starts next year, having played a half year in Columbia and a half year in St. Lucie, I'd be very surprised if they bumped him up to um, Binghamton, because a obviously the talent really just isn't there, and he's you know he's a known for being a Florida guy, and St. Lucie's ticket sales skyrocketed when he was down there, and Visiting teams had record-breaking ticket sales, and I don't know. I could I see his his ceiling being down there because he's a gimmick, basically. And it's so weird when when Columbia came when he was on Columbia, and he came up here, and they were playing in Lakewood, in Jersey, and seeing all these Tebow fans in Jersey. Like, where did that come from? Not not Jets Tebow fans, but like you know. Gator Tibo fans. I uh, I just heard
3: this is I swear this is related. It's not going to sound like it is, but that there is a store in Old Jerusalem, in like the markets of Old Jerusalem, that just sells Alabama merchandise. It's called like Roll Tide Jerusalem or something, and all they do is sell Alabama stuff, and essentially. I read an interview with the owner and he said like that you have no idea how popular college sports are until you open a store like that. And they make a lot of money doing it. So I feel like based on that bit of anecdotal evidence, I think there's just way more people who are aware of college football stars than maybe I was knowledgeable about, you know, and, uh, for whatever reason, there are a lot of people who I, who like Tebow as a, as a, College football player. I don't know if that has to do with, you know, his his clean cut sort of, uh, you know, public persona, or if they really thought that he was a great quarterback, or what. I it, the whole Tebow fandom is truly fascinating to me.
4: <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's it's something else. It's definitely something else.
3: So so let's let, let's just focus on Tebow for one more second here. If you had to guess. How many more seasons of minor league baseball Tim Tebow has in him? What would you put that at? Two, three, more, less?
4: Uh fewer. I'm just gonna say next season. I think that if I think that next year he might actually get that call up to the MLB just because uh, you know, regardless of his performance obviously. But I, I don't really see him sticking it for the long haul. And honestly, like financially, I don't know. Like it doesn't make sense to him. He could be making a lot more money just traveling the country, doing signing books, you know, stupid things like like that. I don't know. I'll give him credit. He seems to really want to actually pursue baseball and good for him. But I don't know. I feel like if he was, if he had a better financial advisor, the guy would be saying, "What are you doing? Do something else." Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, if.
3: If Tebow was called up this September, people would have been very upset. But I understand that the Mets are totally out of it this year. There's no reason to work get yourself worked up about that. If the Mets are good, and they're in the hunt in September next year, and they call up Tebow, get ready for the hot takes,
4: folks. But Tebow will definitely hit at least like one woke off home run. So, because he's Tebow. And of course, you need to... Add that to the mix,
3: I'm trying I mean, to... he remember
4: he started off his season, he started the professional season his first at bat, he hit a home run so <laughs> off of off of the six hundred and sixty sixth sixth drafted player, so there's always you know the Tebow factor,
3: man, someone's gonna have a lot of fun with that if it happens next year, with the Tebow call up um, yeah, that's uh. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Uh, Well, let's let's go over to St. Lucie. I know we kind of went out of order there, but I I wanted to do that to to talk about the Tebow call-up. So let's talk about St. Lucie. Uh, St. Lucie went 63 and 75 this season. This is one of the few Mets-owned affiliates, and so you know uh, the St. Lucie promotion of of, uh, Tim Tebow was talked a lot about in terms of ticket sales that goes directly into the Wilpons' pockets. Um, but what else was worth seeing in St. Lucie this season, Steve?
4: Um, well, there was Peter Alonso, for sure. Um, he had a very good offensive season. Uh, his defensive prowess is much less than his offense. But um, arguably, I, I, could, I would say that Alonso is a top 10 first base prospect going into next season for you know, all of baseball. I think might have been the last podcast segment that I did. I was comparing him to a couple of guys that are probably going to be on the back end of that list, and he compares pretty favorably to those people. So um, he hit his way onto uh, the top 10 first base prospect list. Um, Johan Joreno also had a return season. He kind of had fallen off the map for a couple of years, last two years or so, basically because of Injuries, um, he, he basically walked his way um, into success this year. His walk rate was uh, way up. Um, he's a guy, and and his uh, batting average is also up. So he basically hit his way back into uh, relevancy. But for St. Lucie, I think it was more um, disappointment than... Um, breakouts, and surprise, because... Basically, like, I, I, I guess the, the poster boy for that would be Justin Dunn. Um, he's not a guy that I was very high on, since even since he was drafted, but basically nothing he did this season was good. There wasn't really a single redeeming quality about his seasons. High ERA, walks were up, strikeouts were down. Um, he ended the season with a sore... Yeah sore shoulder, and knowing the Mets, it wouldn't surprise me if he was experiencing shoulder problems for the entire season, which would be a big contributor why he did so poorly, but I mean, he was basically the marquee guy on St. Lucie, and it's a good thing that some of those um, hitters stepped up, because they could have been a really, really, really bad team without some of those breakout seasons with the Bats.
3: Um, is there anybody that you think... Uh... We should maybe expect to skip, uh, I guess, skip starting the season next year in St. Louis and go right up to, to Binghamton. Any any sort of surefire double A's for next season?
4: Um, there's a couple of, I mean, Alonso got, already got promoted to double-A for just a couple of games last year or this season, and he'll probably start next, he'll definitely, I should say, start in Binghamton next year. Urania skipped over double a and was sent directly to triple a but i think that was more because they didn't want to mess with the uh, playoff roster and they didn't really have a spot for him first base third base and dh all taken so he should probably spend time in double a next year um and i mean there really aren't that many other guys that we could expect to go from St. Lucie to Binghamton next season that might stand out. Um, Becerra, I mean, I feel like he's a lost cause at this point. He'll, he'll, I think he should be going to Binghamton next year, but honestly, I don't see anything there anymore. Um,
3: the trade's a failure. Mike,
4: yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> um, Michael Payas, he was a, a middle infielder. He started the season in... Um, Columbia, and he was promoted to St. Lucie midseason. He, he's a college guy. He could start the season next year at um, Binghamton, but if he doesn't, he'll definitely make it to Binghamton by midseason or so. He had a decent year. I mean, that's there's a couple of pitchers, uh, a lot of those relievers, again, that were traded, um, that, that were received in the trades that could Get bumped up to Binghamton next season, conceivably. And there's a few guys that are in-house that have been around that could, uh, you know, see the natural promotions and everything. But
3: Chris, any Saint Lucie questions? I think we lost Chris.
4: (laughs) I'll take that as a no. Oh
2: wait, hold on. Oh, I'm here. Oh, you're there? Okay. I, uh, I I muted. Oh, okay. Temporarily there, so as to not have beer drinking sounds, you know, <laughs> interrupting. Uh, what I said in response to your question that I was muted for was, was Alonzo was kind of the guy uh, who, you know, I wanted to hear about, but Steve already spoke about him. Um, just because last year, a little over a calendar year ago at this point... Um, you know, I had seen him hit some baseballs in a very powerful way in Brooklyn that is not necessarily easy to do there. Uh, but we already touched on that. So that, that was it for me, I think for St. Lucie.
4: Okay. Uh, we go a little more into Alonso. He basically, he's always had power. That was never a question. And just basically, the bat was kind of suspect. And I know a lot of people, like Jeff, don't really believe in the bat that much. Um, He made changes midway through the season. Obviously, it worked out well for him because in in, uh, St. Lucie, he hit 286. And then, you know, his two week or so cup of coffee in Binghamton, he hit uh, 311. But, um, I mean one of his biggest problems was that he just kind of had a long swing, and supposedly he shortened it up a little bit and he kind of um just is is according to him he's just over he's not overthinking at bats anymore he's a guy that he's always had um a reputation as being kind of susceptible to pitches on the outside and knowing. Like that pitchers is setting up, but just kind of not really being able to do anything about that and not really being able to like stop himself from swinging on like borderline pitches, things like that. And supposedly something that he was doing over the course of the season was just kind of reacting to pitches more than thinking about it. So instead of saying to himself, like, okay, this guy has me in this count, he's probably going to throw me this. So what should I do? And then he might know that I might do that. So then how do I react to his, you know, correction? So supposedly he's just kind of been shutting his mind off and just reacting instinctively to pitches and just swinging the ball and hitting the ball. And I mean, whatever it, whatever it was that has helped him something has helped him cuz he hit, you know, he hit so well. So hopefully that continues. Hopefully he's able to be a 300 hitter in Dinghamton next season over the course of like 100 games.
3: All right. All right. Yeah. Um, do you want to go to Brooklyn next?
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think Steve might have had enough of the uh, Cyclones for the year. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about them. They went
3: 24-52, and 52, had a pretty dreadful season. Steve, why was their season so dreadful?
4: Uh, I don't know. Everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. I mean, guys underperformed. Guys were hurt. You know, guys uh David Peterson, they basically sounds... got only. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. only got a handful of innings out of the guy that should have been their best pitcher because he was hurt Um, I went to like 8 games maybe last year and I think I stayed all 9 innings once and that was really just to see fireworks (laughs) so I mean really from top to bottom the offense, the pitching starting pitching, relief pitching there really wasn't anything exciting to see I mean they had one reliever, Stephen uh, Villains, who kind of showed a lot of potential, but other than that, everybody just really seems like filler.
3: Uh, I'm not even gonna bother asking about sort of biggest surprises, biggest busts because it sounds like
4: how bad they were. Yeah, it <laughs> just mean,
3: sounds like it's not really a uh, a worthy conversation.
4: Basically, they 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 went on a 14 game losing streak, which is pretty impressive, and. It's a good thing that they won a couple of games at the end of the year because if they didn't, they would have either beat or tied the worst record uh, in New York Penn League history, which was the 1981 uh, Batavia Trojans. They went 16 and 59. So, if the Met, if if the Cyclones hadn't gone on that little winning streak at the end of August and the beginning of September, they could have definitely tied or even beat that. So.
3: Were there any guys on the team that you feel like, even though they had a poor season, are still positioning themselves to be future uh, successful major leaguers, or is this team just so damned that you uh, you can't even see that?
4: <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of there was some hitters. There was Jeremy Vasquez and um, Carl Stajichar. They have promise, but I don't think that they have upside to really be more than just kind of like. Filler guys in the upper levels of the minor leagues, if even a lot of relievers, uh, same thing. And starting pitching, they had. A, there's a few guys that do have promise, um, but they just kind of uh, either had injuries, like Peterson. It just didn't really pitch. Um, yeah, it was just it just wasn't a good year
2: for Brooklyn. Okay. Chris, any Brooklyn-related queries? Uh, No, just one Brooklyn-related thought. I saw them once this year. It was the first Matt Harvey rehab outing. It did not go well. (laughs) And there were fireworks uh, at Hudson Valley, but uh, the way it worked out, I didn't really know this as we were leaving, but I didn't want to get stuck because the combination of Harvey and fireworks... And this is clearly what people are tuning into the podcast to hear.
3: <laughs>
2: but it's it's a worthwhile it's a worthy note, I guess. If you if you go to a fireworks night when the Cyclones play up there, as they do, uh, I think at least twice every year, um, certainly at least once. But if there's a fireworks night and you are coming back in this direction or any other direction that you know, getting on 84 East would take you from that park. Uh, if you just leave. As thousands of people sit in the stadium to watch the fireworks, you can see like eighty percent of the fireworks as you get on the highway. <laughs> <laughs> that was my Cyclones' highlight of the season. Uh, <laughs> kind of inadvertently finding that out. Cyclones' highlight
3: slash life hack.
2: <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, that basically describes you know if you if you were just sitting basically at Nathan's, which happened to me once. I was I left the game early. <laughs> I was just sitting at Nathan's, and a sudden I see some fireworks. I'm like, oh, that's nice.
2: What is this? Yeah. Nice. So yeah, the avoid irony the cyclones,
4: is that... but see the fireworks.
2: <laughs> and the irony is that living in New York City, uh, I'd say more than half the time, it's a shorter drive, uh, being in the Bronx, to get to Hudson Valley than it is to get to Coney Island. Um, so yeah. But it's either way. certainly shorter for me.
3: <laughs> I'm like, you know, 18 minutes from the Tappan Bridge, so... Hudson Valley is not too bad for me. Nice. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up with the two uh, the two last ones here. Uh, are you feeling more Kingsport? Are you feeling more Gulf, Gulf Coast League, Steve?
4: Uh, I mean, they are both really kind of <laughs> there. It's hard yeah. to really feel attached to them because you know it's very rare that we get direct reports and we don't ever get you know. I you know, very rarely we get like eyewitness reports, and we basically never get. You know, um, you know. I I don't see the GCL Mets or Kingsport, so it's kind of hard to get attached to either one. But
3: all right, so let's let's just plow through this then. GCL yeah. went nineteen and thirty-seven. Kingsport went twenty-nine and thirty-seven. Any any notable uh things from those teams this year? Uh,
4: Yes, definitely. I would say that the GCL Mets were the most exciting and or intriguing team, based on how you want to define exciting, because there's a lot of talent in uh, their pitching staff. Uh, looking at IFA guys, there's Dyson Acosta, Jason Valera, Jason Ocampos, they all had strong seasons. Uh, Matt Cleveland, who was drafted 2016, he had a solid year. And then there's a bunch of prep pitchers from the 2017 draft. Bryce Hetchinson, Nate Pedden, Noah Nunez, Liam McCall, Ronnie Taylor, Josh Walker. A lot of these guys, I mean, obviously they're years and years and years away from being anything. And their careers could more likely than not flame out than have any kind of success. But these are guys that they have varying levels ups of upside and... It's exciting to see them, you know, just starting and imagining what they could be, and you know, getting ready to follow them for hopefully years. Hopefully, they all have Hall of Fame seasons for the Mets.
3: I can certainly get behind that. <laughs> uh Well, Steve, we got an email, and we're gonna we're gonna let you in on the, uh, discussing this email. This is by uh, our friend David Ramos, and uh, Chris. What was the subject line of this email? What a shit year. so David says what's up guys Uh, thanks for your good work in Mets therapy what a crap year I mean real crap with that being said here are my top 5 positive things from this year what's your take number 5 we should have a top 7 draft pick number 4 DeGrom I won't rate him higher because he's been a bit up and down but overall he'd be pleased with his season number 3 Ahmed Rosario looks like a player number 2 The season is only 162 games long not longer. Number three. Uh, number one. Yeah, I don't know five things. This season has been a disaster. Uh, any of those
2: either of you want to comment on? Uh, I will say DeGrom, uh, that actually sums it up pretty well. Uh, you know, it has not been a career year for him, but it's also been pretty good. Uh, certainly the best pitcher on the Mets staff, which is not exactly uh, <laughs> I – I don't know. If, you, if your arm stayed attached – uh, for the entire season, I think he won that award, and he certainly did more than that. Uh, but yeah, you know he's he's had some stinkers to borrow a term from Keith, uh, mm-hmm. but he's also still gone out and had those dominant Degrom starts, where you go into next year feeling like that's Jacob Degrom. You know, you're not. There are many things that worry me about the 2018 Mets. Uh, he isn't. He's not one of them. So. So, yeah, that's good. Um, I will leave the draft pick portion to Steve. I'd say Rosario. I just keep saying the same thing every week on the podcast, but, you know, he looks like what I had hoped, which is just, you know, pretty much holding his own as a major leaguer. Um, And that's fine. He's really young. Uh, So with that... I move on. I will say also the the subject line, the uh, the I was an asterisk. And then in the, I appreciate that it switched from that to crap in the actual email. <laughs> but we, we filled in the blank there. So
3: Yeah. Uh, I'll add that I think Rosario, you know, obviously the last few weeks have been a little rough for him because he had a swollen finger. And then he had some sort of incredibly violent, uh, stomach bug going on, so it's it's been a rough go of him for him for the last few weeks. But I'll say, you know, he's looked quite good in the field. He's hit a little bit. He's, um, you know, to me that's definitely a reason to be hopeful. I would even add that there is some uh, some other minor, I don't mean minor league, but some some minor successes there. You know, I think Brandon Nimmo has looked about as good as you could hope Brandon Nimmo would look right now. You know, hit another home run today. I don't think much of that's sustainable, but he's been he's been alright. You know, you've seen guys like Philip Evans come up and hit the ball hard at least. You know, you're just you're seeing you're seeing a lot of players who might get cups of coffee again next season. No one is stood out as a star aside from Rosario, but these other guys are good enough to get a couple of weeks playing time probably for the 2018 Mets. Um, now, Steve, in, in terms of a top seven draft pick, I know this is very early.
4: But how does next year's draft
3: class look? Do you have any any feel for that yet?
4: Uh, supposedly the the top of the draft for next season is supposed to be very talented. So I mean the low I mean this should be always, but the lower the Mets can get as a pick, the or higher the the better, because you know the better player we draft, the quicker we can turn things around and become a good team again. Does and that mean on-
3: that we're rooting for Washington this this uh, weekend?
4: Oh, I'm rooting for Mets to lose every single game between now and uh, the end of the season. I mean, I, like I it. said I, I haven't <laughs> watched. Uh, I haven't watched a Mets game. Uh, well, I mean, I was watching the game the other day, but I haven't watched and really had my heart into it, really cared for weeks and weeks now. So, to me, the worst record, you know. Having as poor a record as possible is the best case scenario. It's like, you know, getting sick. You feel nauseous. Sometimes throwing up, it sucks, but it's the best thing for you. <laughs> so the Mets just kind of need to throw up right now and get as high a pick as possible. But um, in terms of outlook for the 2018 Mets, there probably is not going to be much help coming from the minor leagues, unfortunately. Um, there's a bunch of relievers that could see some time um, but you know the impact the reliever has on a game is kind of minimal except for like you know individual at-bats um, it would be nice if the Mets kind of could be counted on to pursue uh, Shohei Otani that's unlikely he would definitely be able to change the outlook on things in an in instant but because of just kind of the lack of high-profile talent at the top of the system and the fact that a lot of guys are either going to be out for all the season or a large chunk of the season because of medical concerns and whatever else, it's not looking too rosy for help from the inside.
3: Well, that's a nice optimistic note to end on. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Uh, In addition to rooting for the Mets to lose all these games, can we also make sure they're nice and short?
4: That's very true. There's nothing worse than uh an extra innings you know crappy game at one thirty in the morning because Las Vegas is still going and they just refuse to lose so i <laughs> I understand how horrible a feeling is when you just want the game to be over, so you could just finally get to go to sleep. You don't want to do it anymore. I get that,
3: yeah. The one game I hope the Mets win, and I mean this sincerely. Is uh, September twenty seventh when we're going to be at the ball game, and yes. uh, uh, Chris and I will be there at least. Steve, you going to be able to make it out that
4: night? Probably not. Ah, oh,
3: boo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, kidding.
4: Literally, I'm. I'm uh, I might go. I don't know. We'll
3: see. I, I, I'm, I'm sure if we pulled up StubHub right now, tickets would be uh, sub ten dollars.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think Steve also just gave the tagline for the event. I might go, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> if you do go, uh Chris and I will be hanging out, having beers, probably eating some sort of uh, sandwich. That's probably a pretty good guess. And uh come say hi. So uh I guess this is our last show before before the event, so when you get to the ballpark, you can tweet at us I'm at Brian is in app. Chris is at Chris McShane Tweet at us, we'll, we'll coordinate with you as to where we are, and uh, we'll hang out. Hopefully you guys can make it out, because uh,
2: it might be fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making <laughs> too many promises here. It might be fun. As, as a general descriptor, we'll be in the uh, left field vicinity, the left field corner vicinity on the field level on the concourse. And, uh, yeah, tickets are before fees six dollars on step hub so after that's uh that's ten dollars and eighty two cents so just get yourself into the ballpark and uh, and you know come come find us down that way and we can send the meds up Mets off into the abyss together yeah
1: <laughs>
0: Great impression here are the top five rookie seasons in new york mets history at number five it's a recent rookie and a current star jacob de in 2014. the typical fanfare that surrounds an encounter with the yankees was greater than the talk about who the mets were sending to the mound in fact de probably arrived at city field without any throng of fans around him or security by his side but after his debut start which ended up as a hard-luck 1-0 loss, and the 21 that followed, his anonymity was gone for good. A short period of ups and downs gave way to an extended period that was most pleasantly surprising. DeGrom found his groove by July 8th, and from that point on, he was victorious in 8-of-9 decisions, fan 91, and had an ERA at 1.90. The solidification of his Rookie of the Year attainment came in September, when he refused to yield an earned run for 28 consecutive innings. None of the great Mets rookie pitchers, not Seaver, Kuzman, Matlack, or Gooden, can claim an arrangement of zeros as impressive. That streak ended on September 15th, yet the evening at City Field began with another remarkable sequence. The first eight Miami Marlins DeGrom face struck out, matching the modern-day Major League record and besting the previous franchise mark of six. He wound up with 13 Ks over seven innings, yet win number nine eluded him. It wouldn't in his last start of 2014, an outing versus the Atlanta Braves, which was highlighted by DeGrom's fourth double-digit strikeout performance. On to number four, and Tom Seaver's Rookie of the Year campaign of 1967. The verve and swagger, as well as the power and control, unbecoming of someone with so little professional baseball experience, was apparent in Seaver from the very beginning. But as Tom went through a year that saw him post a 2.75 ERA and win 16 games for a last-place club that won just 61, it's hard not to reckon and think how close this was to never happening in New York and taking place with some other fortunate franchise. He was nearly taken by the Dodgers in the June 1965 amateur draft, but he opted to stay at the University of Southern California. He then was taken in a draft the following January, consisting of those who were taken last June, but never signed. The Braves got Seaver, but failed to sign him before USC's next season began. The, co- the contract the two sides made up was then voided. Seaver was ineligible to pitch for the Trojans, and every major league team could match Atlanta's offer. Three teams had the foresight to think he was worth more than $50,000 the Phillies, the Indians, and of course the Mets. Three pieces of paper, each representing the teams vying for Tom's services, were placed into a hat. Luckily for us, the right team came up. The Mets hadn't had someone like him before, and have had no one like him since. One who pitched on the same rotation as Seaver, John Matlack, comes in at number three. A player's initiation into the big leagues is helped, or hurt, by the supporting cast around him. For Matlack, the second Met to be named National League Rookie of the Year, he couldn't have had a smoother transition when he was a permanent major leaguer beginning in 1972. The knowledge obtained was demonstrated sans hesitation. Matlack notched his first win on April 23rd versus Chicago with four innings in relief of Gary Gentry and one hit allowed. After closing the door on that victory, John got the chance to start and finish five days later in Los Angeles. The Dodgers could manage just a run on six hits in his first of eight complete games, a nice way to ensure job security. It took until June before Matlack experienced what defeat felt like in 1972. He'd end up with 15 victories, which was second most to Seaver, as was his strikeout total of 169. But in the categories of wins above replacement, 6.0, shutouts, 4, and ERA, 2.32, he stood a cut above. The pupil had outshone the instructors. Jerry Kuzman was one who helped Matlack get acclimated to the major league level, and the fellow Southpaw can boast the number two rookie season in Mets history. The franchise's greatest left-handed starter, and perhaps its greatest postseason pitcher, almost never made it to the Mets either. After being discovered on Fort Bliss while serving in the Army, Kuzman was very nearly cut in 1966 and 1967. Nevertheless, he survived and advanced to the big leagues in 1968. And after his first two starts, there was never any thought to cutting him again. In the season's second game at Dodger Stadium, he hurled a four-hit shutout. If that wasn't impressive enough, he followed it up in his next turn, five days later in the home opener against San Francisco. Another complete game, another shutout. He'd post five more blankings, 17 more victories, complemented by 178 strikeouts and a 2.08 ERA. Each of these stats surpassed what Seaver did a year prior. He also made the All-Star team, and tossed a scoreless ninth to pick up the save and preserve the only 1-0 final score in the game's history. But for all those accomplishments, there was no Rookie of the Year award. That went narrowly to Cincinnati's Johnny Bench. Considering the Mets have a much stronger history with pitching than hitting, it's not much of a shock to have the first four names consist of pitchers. Well, that trend doesn't change as we reach number one. It's Dwight Gooden with an amazing 1984 season. Shea Stadium, for nearly seven years as a baseball mortuary, as fan support diminished and victories became even scarcer, was now must-see off-Broadway theater. The lead performer was a captivating pitching wonderkind, not just the most exciting teenager in the big leagues, but the soon-to-be best pitcher in baseball. Gooden's indoctrination to his elder brethren featured a whistling fastball capable of reaching into the high 90s, countered with a drop-off-the-table curveball. Helpless opposing hitters were left with the grim choice of being overpowered, or fooled. Either way, Doc was overwhelming. His 276 strikeouts, 11.9 every 9 innings, remains an all-time rookie record. Of the 879 batters he faced, 31.4% ended in K, a notation that became a commonly visible sight around the rafters at Shea when he was on the mound. A 2.60 ERA led the Mets and nearly led the entire National League. He went 17-9, had the highest war among pitchers, became the youngest all-star, and was runner-up for the Cy Young. To say he won the National League Rookie of the Year goes without saying. It wouldn't be a long time before we witnessed someone like Doc again. And in the case of Gooden himself, it wasn't long enough. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter, at BrianWright86.
1: I know I told you last week to stop panicking because none of this matters anymore and to find a new hobby, and I still stick by that. I still think you should find a new hobby because this game is going to destroy all of us. But if you choose to stick around, if you are a masochist like I am, it's all the injuries again. Uh, This morning, it's Wednesday, as always. I don't know why I tell you this every week. I always record on Wednesdays. Juan Lagaris is a thumb thing because Juan Lagaris is incapable of staying healthy Ahmed Rosario's in the hospital with some stomach thing. That's not, I mean, it's the second time this year, but that's not like a thing. They're all broken. But Matt Harvey is like really, really broken. And they keep saying he's fine and no one knows what's wrong. And he's just, I don't even know what the lies are coming or excuses they're coming up with anymore. But he looks terrible. The velocity is up a tick, there's no command. There's, there's nothing. He can't pitch anymore. And Terry keeps going, and this isn't even me being sarcastic and obnoxious. Terry's literally going, well, what else am I supposed to do? And the answer is not pitch him. But that apparently isn't an answer in this organization. So instead, they're going to keep throwing him. And he's going to throw 180 innings next year if he stays healthy. And he's going to have a 60-year And they're just going to shrug their shoulders every single time. I don't know if he's still hurt. And this isn't helping by having him throw instead of rehabbing. Or maybe he's just done. I don't know. I have more n- people who are much smarter than I am and have better medical skills and knowledge than I am who are supposed to be figuring this out. And either they're not or they're not doing a very good job of it or something's going on. Because Matt Harvey should not be pitching right now. Yet Matt Harvey is still pitching.
3: Folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you for listening. We truly appreciate it. We will be uh, here all off season, so hopefully, you guys can send us in some emails, like our friend David did this week, to podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com so that we can uh, have lots of interesting things to talk about during this offseason that isn't just us playing fantasy GM all the time. Um, you can also, of course, go to AmazingAvenue.com and get all your Mets related coverage there. You know, from this podcast, to game threads, to recaps, to news, to analysis, to some fun stuff. It's all dot AmazonAvenue.com, so check that out. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Amazing Avenue. You can download this show directly from blogtalkradio.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. Please do rate, review, and subscribe, however you find the show. And finally, you can follow all of us on Twitter, I am at Brian Needs a Nap, Chris is at Chris McShane, Steve is at Steve Saipa, Brian is at Brian Wright eighty six, and Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. So remember to come out to the uh ballpark on the twenty-seventh for the last game of the year, last home game of the year. We hope you will join us in uh doing a bit of an Irish wake for the Mets season. And uh yeah, we'll see you then. And until then, let's go Mets.